Well, we are going through the Westminster Confession of Faith, and tonight we come to chapter 11, which is of justification. We began the two chapters previously. We began the salvation section, and we're in the heart of it now, the doctrine of justification. I'm only going to do the first paragraph tonight. I, I think I can do the others in one, but I, I, I think I'll get through the first paragraph. Because listen to this. Those whom God effectually calleth, he also freely justifieth. Not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins. And by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous. Not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone. Nor by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness. But by imputing the obedience and satisfaction of Christ unto them, they receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith, which they have not of themselves. It is the gift of God. Wow. Well, let's look at that statement. Well, we, we see how not just the confession, but the, the biblical teaching leads us in a certain direction. It begins by saying those who are effectually called are justified. And of course, you can back that up. You think of Romans 8.30, the golden chain. Those whom God predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And so the people who are justified are the elect. And they are justified in time. Actually, that issue is going to be dealt with a few paragraphs down the road. Um, Then it starts, one of the beauties of the confession is it, of course, it's historically located it is dealing with perennial errors, but also some that are, that are local to them historically, although we deal with all of them. But they're going to do a good job of affirmations and denials here. Sometimes that's a very good way of making clear what your position is. So we're going to get some denials, we're going to get some affirmations. The first we have is a denial. Not by infusing righteousness. Now, what does that mean? Well, that is a reference to the Roman Catholic doctrine of infused righteousness. Uh, and by the way, uh, of course, the Protestant Reformation does take place uh, in, in a context where it's leaving the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, I'm sure there's other errors. I'm sure there's Eastern Orthodox errors that don't show up here. Well, that's because there wasn't a big Eastern Orthodoxy problem in 17th century England. But uh, there, these are perennial issues. Now, infused, infused, infused righteousness uh, is a Roman Catholic doctrine then and now that assumes a few things. And the first and most important thing it assumes is that God will justify you when you are just. God will declare you righteous when you are perfectly righteous. Uh, that, but even, that's why even the name, the Latin term justification actually has a, a, a Roman twist to it. And this is one of the issues in the Latin Vulgate. Uh, the, 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 the Latin word facare means to make, and justus means just. Justification means to make righteous. We actually do not believe that God makes us righteous. We, but that's, that's the Roman Catholic view and others. That God will justify you, frankly, when you deserve it. And, and, and of course, and the argument is Cardinal Bellarmine in the, in the uh, uh, Counter-Reformation pointed out, otherwise God, you have God committing a legal fiction. God is just. He will not justify you until you have been made 
worthy of it. And so their doctrine of justification is going to envision ways in which people like you and me who are sinners become worthy of being justified, declared, granted a just status and by being worthy of it by our own justification. Now, how does that happen? Well, secondly, it is by God's grace. If someone says to you that Protestants believe in salvation by grace and Roman Catholics believe in salvation by works, that is not actually accurate. Roman Catholics believe in salvation by grace. But it is a sacramental grace, and what happened? Here's the infused aspect of it. It primarily comes from baptism, but primarily the Mass that God is infusing, you get the, you think of a blood transfusion. Grace is being worked into your spirit spiritually, primarily by the sacrament of the mass, so that you are being changed. And so infused righteousness is a sacramental model of grace by which you're like a, you're like a cucumber in the vinegar and you do it long enough, and you're going to become a pickle. That just came to me. But we'll see if, that, if that's a serviceable. It's, it's okay, I think. Um, um, now, here's the problem. You die. And you usually die before you're made a pickle, before you're fully righteous. I had a, uh, a wonderful boss when I taught at West Point, one of the best colonels I ever worked for. He's a master teacher, a professor of behavioral sciences, and he was Roman Catholic, and he was a totally secular man. He was, a, he was a wonderful man, but there were some really pronounced ungodly things about his life, and he certainly was not a, a meaningful follower of Jesus Christ. I remember going to his funeral and watching the priest shake the incense over his casket, say, I declare you righteous, and it just left me so frustrated. Uh, but here's the problem. If you have to be made righteous in order to be declared righteous and you die before that happens, there has to be a post-death process, post-death process that will get that done, and that is what purgatory is. I've heard R.C. Sproul put it so vividly, purgatory is not hell, it just looks and feels like hell. Purgatory is not bad news, it's good news. It's how a sinner ends up into heaven. 58,000 years of smoking, you know, in, in purgatory. But as R.C. says, but it's not very good news. Uh, and, and the logic of it is demanded by the infused righteous system. There has to be some post-death way by which you merit the righteousness you need to be accepted in the presence of God. If you look in the Roman Catholic Catechism, which has got one of the greatest indexes ever done, I'm in awe of the index of this thing. And you look for the biblical proof text for purgatory. It's actually the reference in 1 Corinthians 3 where Paul's talking about something completely different. He's talking about uh, your, your ministry should, uh, should, be, should use you know, spiritual biblical resources so that when God tests it, it will endure. And Paul makes a statement, some people's work will be tested by fire and they will escape as a man fleeing a burning house. Paul's actually talking about someone who is saved, but because their life's work was, was, was unbiblical, they won't take anything with them. That's actually, the, which means it's not a proof text. It's a verbal similarity with nothing to do with it. Why do they teach purgatory? Because the system demands it. 
Well, it's an abominable doctrine, and it's untrue, and it's untrue at the beginning. Justification is not how God justifies you when you've been made righteous, just. It is, in fact, God's declaration that of sinners to be godly. One of the most powerful verses um, uh, that's used is, is in Romans chapter 4, 5, where he says, God justifies the ungodly. The Bible states, if, if one cares to read it, the exact opposite of the doctrine. Instead of saying that God will justify you when you are godly, Paul explicitly says, no justification is of people who in and of themselves are ungodly people. And so not by the infusion of righteousness. But, now here's the the affirmation, but God pardoning their sins. And so God, the language of pardon belongs to the doctrine of justification. Now, when you pardon someone, they are guilty. By the way, it's not the whole doctrine of of justification. But you're acknowledging they're guilty. But for some reason, we'll see what that reason is in this case, you, the judge, decide not to convict them. And God forgives us of our sins. It is a forgive, It involves the forgiveness, the pardon of sins. And you think of uh, the great statement of 2 Corinthians 5, 19. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sins no more. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Now, that's a really important thing, though. Because one thing we're seeing broader than just the polemics between Protestants and Roman Catholics is this tendency to want to smuggle works into justification. Uh, We believe in works and salvation, not as the condition, but as the consequence. If you've been saved, you will do good works. But But you're never justified by works that you do. And the infused righteousness is just a very sophisticated, grace driven way of making it about you, but it's not about us, thank the Lord. He pardons our sins. Let's do another one here. Uh, Here's the negative, not by their works. It says he accounts them righteous. Let me go back to the first slide. And by accounting, I have a typo there, and by accounting and accepting their persons. Now notice that those are declarative terms. Justification is, is a declaration, it's a forensic, it's a legal status that is declared. It's not about your nature, it's about your status before the law of God and before God himself. And he, account, he accounting and accepting our persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone. That's where I am there. Not by their works. Now, this is the product, the Reformation doctrine of Justification through faith alone, not by works. And I've heard people say the Bible never teaches that it's justification through faith alone. Well, yes, it does. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't use that sequence of words in that setting. But look at Galatians 2.16. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Y'all, that's justification through faith, not by works. I love Romans 4, 4 to 5. In fact, I'm going to come back to it later. Paul says, now to the one who works, his wages are accounted not as a gift, but as his due. Paul's got works 
versus faith here. And he goes, there's two ways. So if you're going to do it by works, you you deserve it. It's something you've earned. It's your reward. That's one way. Your problem is you can't do it, but it's one way. The other way is to the one who does not work, but trustifies him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And so there's quite a polemic in the New Testament against the contribution of works to our justification. And thank the Lord for that. Uh, Titus 3.5, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but, be, but according to his own mercy. So, uh, Isaiah 64.6 tells us why we all have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. My problem is not just my sins. My problems are my good deeds stink. They're corrupted. And isn't, isn't it discouraging, those moments of self-honesty that, you know, you never do anything truly good, <laughs> ever? Never, nothing meritoriously good. We do good things, but they are corrupted by sinful attitudes, thoughts, motivations, doing them for ourselves, not for God. We, there's no work. If I take my best works and I say, Lord, I want to be justified. Can I, can I just be justified by the best 5% of my life? He's going to go, it stinks, Rick. It, it, Jeremiah says it's, it's, like a, it's like a filthy gar- garment. It's, thank God it's not by works, but rather it's for Christ's sake. You think of Romans three twenty three to 25, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I love these words. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And there's all kinds of great stuff in there. But that's just that statement. God provided what we need. He's pro etheto his son, he, he set forth Christ that we would be justified, not having anything in ourselves, nothing to lay hold of, nothing to present. God presented, that's the language of it. He presented Jesus, his son. And that's, that's in the key passage about justification. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Now notice there, that the movement of justification is not us to him. It's him to us. He reconciles us to, to himself. It's his action to reconcile us to himself. How did he do that? Through Christ. And then Paul says he gave the apostles by preaching Christ, the ministry of reconciliation. In whom, in him... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of his sins. The reason that you and I can be justified is not our works, but because of Christ. And God, when you and I have nothing to present to get that declaration. Uh, By the way, one time somebody was arguing, you can't teach this doctrine to regular Christian folks. By the way, you know I don't believe that. Uh, and, and someone said, he actually used the example of, a, I know a guy who's doing prison ministry and he was trying to teach them the doctrine of justification, like they can understand that. And the guy I was with said, if there's anybody who can understand the language of justification, it's people who are in prison. Uh, I, 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 I have been charged of two felony crimes. It's kind of a long story, I'll keep it short. When I was a lieutenant in the Army, I was charged with hit and run driving and failure to render aid. My vehicle was, was a M1A1, actually it was an XM1 main battle tank. 
and some engineer had parked his Jeep behind my tank at night at a river crossing, and we backed over his Jeep and didn't even know we'd done so. I remember trying to explain to the provost marshal, what, what, what did you do when you felt the Jeep? Sir, we did not feel the Jeep. Uh, <laughs> it's Newtonian physics. And the provost marshal was just jerking. As his, in fact, I was in the airport the other day. I was talking to a guy, and he had an Army thing. I said, were you in the Army? He goes, yeah. I said, what, what branch of the Army? He says, he says, I was a military policeman. I said, I'm still working off my resentment of you guys. Because, you know, you're hassling the combat troops who are a little unruly. And uh, the provost marshal wanted to ha- hassle the tank units. And I was going to be a centerpiece. And everybody, I went and saw the defense attorney, saw my colonel. They all laughed about it. And they said, there's 0% chance of you being convicted, which was true. But I, it actually took me to, the, to do a traffic report. And the, the report, it was a regular traffic report. And it says, make a vehicle. I said, Chrysler. Model XM1 Abrams. It said three, two door, two or four door. And I said, three hatch. But I will tell you that the night before I stood before that judge on federal felony charges, I didn't get any sleep. And knowing that I'm innocent, I was, I mean, this is one case where I was really completely innocent. Uh, I still sat there with wet palms. Now, when I, if I were to stand before God, I am not innocent. And my crimes are far greater. Oh, we, I have nothing in my hands I bring. I have nothing to present. And he presents Christ. He sets forth Christ for our justification. And, and to the extent that we realize our peril under God's law, and I think brief experiences like the one I had give you a sense of that, um, boy, the more grateful we are that God set forth, God put forth his son for our justification. Uh, let's do a couple of, another negative and another positive. This is a great didactic paragraph. Not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing as their righteousness. We are not justified because we believed. Believing in Jesus does not merit the reward of justification. And, and you'll hear it preached like this sometimes, not as much as it used to be the case. In the Old Testament, it was by works, but that was too hard. So the good news is the grace of God is he gave us something easier. In the New Testament, all we have to do is believe in Jesus. And Paul's going to bang his head against the table if he hears that. Well, first of all, believing in Jesus is not easier than works when you're totally depraved. Uh, is the fact. But that is not what's being taught here. Uh, Faith is the soul. We'll see this in a later paragraph. It's the instrument of our justification. It's the link by which it's it's the, the cup into which God's grace is poured. But our never believe that your faith merits your justification. You are a sinner with faith worthy of condemnation until that which justifies you is, is brought to, to bear. Uh, We are not justified because of our faith as a reward. What are we justified? On what basis are we justified then? By the imputation of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is the because of our justification. By the imputation of Christ's righteousness. To impute, it's, it's an accounting term. In fact, the chief, there's a couple of Greek terms, but the chief one is logizomai. Which, from which we get logarithm, we get logistics. 
It's a, it's a crediting. If, uh, if, 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 if Jimmy transfers into your account uh, $100, you'll get a credit to your account. That's an imputation into your account. It's a reckoning. It's, a, it's a, an accounting. And what is reckoned to our account is the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's on the basis of what Martin Luther called that alien righteousness. Alien, alien to me. It's outside of myself. It's foreign to me. Somebody else's righteousness is imputed to me, is reckoned to my account, and I am justified on the basis of his righteousness, namely Christ. For as by one man's... Oh, this is actually Romans 5, uh, 21. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. We'll look at that a little bit on the next slide, I'm sure. But there you have the imputation of our sin to Christ and the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. Uh, Paul says in Romans 4, 5, To the one who does not work but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. There's a reckoning through faith to him of the righteousness of Christ. This is the very heart of our gospel. Uh, well, let's look at imputation. Uh, again, Romans, uh, sec- oh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin. Well, it raises the question, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. How did my sins get to Jesus? Because there's a parallel at work here. The same manner that my sins got to him is how his righteousness gets to me. God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. There's a parallel there. Well, how did, how did my sins get to Jesus? It wasn't by participation. Jesus did not participate in, in anyone's sin. He, he's, it wasn't by infusion. He did not gain a corrupt nature. No, rather our sins were credited to him. They were reckoned to him. Isaiah 53, 6. For our sin... Oh, there it is. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You think of the day of the atonement and the high priest would lay his hands on the scapegoat. It's a a legal transfer. It's an accounting of of Israel's sins to the scapegoat. Of course, that's a picture of, of Christ. And Isaiah 53, 6 says, God has transferred by reckoning our sins to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the same way that our sin gets to him, his righteousness uh, goes to us. Donald Gray Barnhouse had the great illustration. In fact, I should have a heavy object here. Uh, First, we have my sin. Imagine a big brick, a really big brick here. And here's Christ. He has no sin. And in terms of the legal guilt of that, what, what was on me has been placed on him. God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so now I have no guilt. All my guilt is on him. And he dies to, to, to deal with that. Uh, on the other hand, he has all righteousness and I have none. And his righteousness is imputed to me and I have the righteousness of Christ. Well, Christ's ob- the confession points out that Christ's obedience and satisfaction are imputed to us. Now, what do we mean by his obedience being imputed? Well, we're talking the covenant of works. 
In fact, in Romans 5.14, speaking of Adam and his failure of the covenant of works, we are told that he is a type of the one to come. So Jesus is going to come covenantally in a way that is anticipated by Adam in the covenant of works. What is that way? Namely, by Adam's obedience or disobedience, the whole race would either rise or fall. Well, Christ is a new covenant head. He's the the second Adam. And likewise, his obedience will will stand, will be reckoned for all who are in him. This is Romans 5, 18 to 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, that's Adam, our covenant head, Adam's failure of the covenant of works. Earlier in that chapter, Paul writes the question, why did people die before the law was given? You see, after the law was given, we know why they died, because there was a sentence of death. Do this and you die. But why were people dying before the law was given? And his argument is, in that they sinned when Adam sinned, Romans 5.13. When Adam sinned, you sinned. You were born with the guilt of Adam imputed to you. Why? Because God sovereignly appointed him to be your covenant of head and his failure under the covenant of works. You not only are born corrupted, a sinner, You're born guilty. That's why David says in Psalm 51, 7, from my moment of my conception, I've been sinful. I was was conceived in iniquity. He's not saying his mother was sinning by the manner of his conception. No, he says from the moment he became a person, he became a guilty, sinful person. Uh, Well, as Adam was our, our head under the covenant of works, Christ under the covenant of grace. For as by one's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And so it's the obedience of Christ. Now here's the good news. Every moment of his life, Jesus became, he was made man. And he was born under the law. And he fulfilled the law with every breath, every thought, every desire, ever, every underlying orientation that he had. Every moment of his life, he was perfectly righteous. There was no sin. When Jesus says before Caiaphas and Pilate, can any of you convict me of sin? And they had nothing to say. It was literally true. And why did he do that? He did it so that you and I would have a righteousness. And he had a righteousness of his own eternally. He is righteous. There's never been any sin in him. But he fulfilled the law on our behalf so that he might give it to us. By the way, that's why when John the Baptist wants to, when doesn't want to baptize him, why? it's a baptism of repentance. You're the, only, you're the one person who doesn't need to repent. Jesus says, let it be so, so that all righteousness will be fulfilled. He, he, he took our place. He, the repentance that you and I should offer, but we can never do it sufficiently well enough. Sometimes people are plagued by that. I feel like my repentance was insufficient. It was. Christ has performed the repentance on your behalf. In terms of your legal status before God, he's fulfilled all righteousness. His obedience is reckoned to you. And then secondly, his satisfaction. Now that's speaking about Christ's atoning work on the cross. He paid the debt of our sin, and that atonement, that paying, that suffering of the wrath our sins deserved, having been imputed to him, his satisfaction is imputed to us. You think of Colossians 2, 13 and 14, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us. So he made satisfaction to the law, therefore canceling the debt. 
uh, with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And you know, if you've been around me long enough, you know I, I love to point out that Romans 19.30, when Jesus says it is finished, the Greek term is tetelestai, that term was also used on bills of lading. It was stamped to say paid in full. And Jesus paid my debt. My debt has been satisfied. And that satisfaction is imputed to me through faith in him. And so the imputation of Christ's righteousness, the double exchange, all my sin is reckoned to him, is credited to him, is transferred to him in terms of guilt. And his achieved righteousness is transferred to me. There's that great scene in Esther chapter 5. When she goes before the Persian king and she puts on the royal robe and then she goes into the court. If you remember, if the, if the emperor, Persian emperor, doesn't raise his scepter, then you'll be killed. But if he raises the scepter, you're admitted. And it's when Esther shows up in the royal garment that the scepter is raised to her. Well, my friend, that is you before your God. You are clothed in the righteousness of Christ and he raises the scepter when you pray and he admits you as a just person into his presence. A number of years ago, there was a theological controversy called the federal vision we were dealing with in the PCA and one of the things it attacked was the imputation of Christ's righteousness. And I remember I was in Chicago at a conference and a friend of mine's mother was there. She's an older woman. And uh, we were. she's explained to me this, this heresy. And so we explained, her son explained uh, uh, the attack on imputed righteousness. And she goes, well, well, Philip, I was rather counting on that being true. And I said, Mrs. Reichen, I'm counting on it being true too. And I never forgot that moment. Why, why? It's the heart of the gospel. What glorious good news that you and I are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Why? Because God set him forward to be our righteousness. That is the heart of justification. Now, I've got a diagram, which is pretty radical for me. Uh, Romans 5, 18 to 19 says this. I already read it, but let's look at it in detail. Because this is kind of the, 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 the legal scheme of justification in the New Testament. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of, here's the sequence, one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So I see there... Let's start with the end result, eternal life, eschatological life. You get that if you have the status of just. So if justification yields for you life. Uh, actually, I, I pointed out to Brendan the other day. By the way, Brendan did great on his exam. I see uh, our brother Dale also was examined on Monday night, did a great job. And uh, But as we were talking about these things... Uh, that the just shall live by faith syntactically is the just by faith shall live. Justification yields life. And it's the just who are entered into heaven in its glory. So I, I want to be justified. What do I got to have to get that status of justification? I got to have the quality of righteousness. Now the problem with Adam is that he did the opposite. I was born in this world in Adam with the status of unrighteousness. Oh, that's really bad. And therefore, I am in the category before God of condemnation. And therefore, that can and must yield the, the, the result of death. This is the thing. Righteousness produces a status of justification, which yields the blessing of life. That's good news. The bad news is that unrighteousness yields the status of condemnation, and that leads to eternal death. 
Now, here's our problem with Adam is that he disobeyed. And so you and I are on that bottom line until we are in Christ through faith. And then he obeys on our behalf. Isn't that the most wonderful good news? He obeys for me. It is tr- Sometimes I put it this way. You must be justified by works and works alone. The good news is that Christ does those works for you. Christ fulfilled the covenant of works on your behalf. He is your new, this is Paul's logic, this scheme here. Your new, he's the second Adam and you are in Christ. And he now has accomplished the obedience. And when that obedience is imputed to you, you are justified. And you, you are righteous, that is. And therefore, being a righteous person, you are justified. I, I love in Hebrews 12, where talking about the saints in heaven, it says the spirits of the just made perfect. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the law of God with its uncompromising demands looks upon you and declares just because it sees the righteousness of Christ that has been imputed to you. And you not only, and so the the very justice of God that you feared, that I feared, now it demands that you be given life. Because you are just because you're clothed in righteousness. And that's true because of the obedience of Jesus Christ. I hope that's a helpful scheme. You can, you can unpack all that directly out of those verses. Okay, I'm almost done. And this, is, this becomes yours through faith. Through faith. The New Testament's crystal clear. That believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Through faith, you have union with Christ. Through belief, God, why is this? Because God, is a, God in his mercy has appointed Christ to be the surety, to be the second Adam, to be the mediator on condition of faith. And through faith, we receive Christ as our Savior and we rest on Christ as our sole righteousness. I love Philippians 3, 9, where Paul says, I want to be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. The righteousness that God gives me. He gives it to me in the form of Christ in his person and his work. I receive him in faith. His obedience is imputed to me. I therefore am righteous. I, the, the law declares me just. I must have eternal life and it's by grace which faith they have not of themselves it is the gift of god that's how the paragraph ends we think of ephesians 2 8 to 9 for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it is the gift of god not a result of works so that no one may boast that's helpful because faith is not a work here's what's crazy faith is something you do You actually exercise it. And in the exercising of it, you know that you're exercising it. You therefore know that you are fulfilling the condition of the covenant of grace because you trust in Christ. And there's biblical definition of that. You therefore receive Christ and all his benefits, including the eternal glory that is to come. And you do it, but it's not of you. It's by God's grace. This is the point of Romans 4.16. That is why it depends on faith in, that, in order that the promise may rest on grace. What, what an insightful statement Paul makes there. The thing about faith, faith being the gift of God, faith is something that only God works in you. You exercise it 
after, like Lydia, God has opened your heart, after God has renewed you, it's the work of God's grace in your life. It's not of works so that you cannot boast. And yet that, it, that is the condition. It's something that you actually do that is not a work, has no merit of yours, and it relies on grace alone. Through faith, by grace. Well, I, I'm going to wrap it up. I've got a few things here. And that means, my friends, that we rest on what Christ has done for us. Our eternal hope rests on what Christ has done for us. Here's James Boyce. The justified person is the one who has ceased trying to please God by his own efforts. By pleasing God there, he means in order to be saved, in order to, to, to approve yourself, and has turned to Jesus instead for the righteousness that God gives freely. This is what it means to be a Christian. It means to stop trying to attain to heaven by our own good works and instead receive, receive what God has done for us in Christ. Here's where faith is empty-handed. You receive Jesus in faith. You believe and trust him. The foundation of the Christian life is not what we can do for God, but what God has done for us. That's, boy, Whether or not that message gets through to our children will determine what they think Christianity means. Well, we want our children to do things and not do things. But our religion is what God has done for us in Christ. Therefore, the entrance into that life is not by working, but by receiving. It is opening our hands to God's gifts. Here's Richard Lovelace. He says, few enough know to start each day with a thoroughgoing stand on Luther's platform You are accepted, looking outward in faith and claiming the holy alien righteousness of Christ as the only ground for acceptance, relaxing in that quality of trust which will produce increasing sanctification as faith becomes active in the form of love and gratitude. You know, sometimes I'll ask people in pastoral counseling, how do you think you stand before God right now? And often they will say, oh, I'm I'm an abomination in God's sight. And I will say to them, but you need to start by realizing at the foot of the cross, having confessed your sins, that you're just. You're just in Christ. You are clothed in the righteousness of God's Son. And we've got some things we've got to work out here, and I would recommend that we do that because it makes a difference. But we do so as a response of gratitude and love for the acceptance we receive in Jesus Christ. We rest on that. And we will always be a justified sinner. Spurgeon says, I know and am fully assured that I am justified by faith in Christ Jesus. I am treated as if I had been perfectly just and made an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ. And yet by nature, I must take my place along the most, among the most sinful. I, though altogether undeserving, am treated as if I had been deserving. I'm treated as if I am loved with so much love as if I had always been godly, whereas before I was ungodly. Who can help being astonished by this? Gratitude for such favor stands dressed in robes of wonder. Calvin says this, It is entirely by the intervention of Christ's righteousness that we obtain justification before God. This is equivalent to saying that man is not just in himself and never will be that the righteousness of Christ is communicated to him by imputation while he remains strictly deserving of punishment. God justifies the ungodly. A couple of more things. You, therefore, are safe. You are saved and forever safe 
through faith. This is my own little quote here. And that's this. I have good news. You will be more holy than you are tonight. That's good. I'm glad I'm going to be more holy. I'm going to be perfectly holy in heaven, and hopefully, you know, a year from now, I'll be more holy than I am now. There's a growth in sanctification. But in all eternity to come, if you are in Christ through faith, you will never be more righteous than you are right now. You will never be more justified. Your, 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 your right to eternal life will never be more sure than it was the moment you believed. Why? Because when you believed in Jesus, you were clothed with a perfect righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. And right now you are as just as Christ is because it's his obedience imputed to you. And you, will be, you are as just now as you will be. You are completely just. And see, it gives us rest. It gives us peace, out of which peace we live for him. And that's where we conclude. It, it, you know, Calvin made the point that we're justified through faith alone, but the faith that justifies never is alone. That faith goes on and does good works. And Martin Lloyd-Jones says, you do not live a good life in order to get in. It's a typo. You live a good life in order to thank him for giving it to you. It yields. People say, if this is true, it would lead to a licentious life. But see, that's never the case with someone who's actually born again. Someone who's, who's actually had the, the work of the Holy Spirit via the effectual call that has changed their hearts. No, in fact, it gives a quality to our obedience. What a different quality there is to good works and zeal and obedience and repentance when it's no longer trying to up our little good brownie point level. Or a pride matter. It's those who are resting on the finished work of Christ and giving glory to him and serving him and saying thank you to him with our increasingly holy lives. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you for paragraph one of the confession on justification through faith alone. But we thank you that this is your doctrine. We thank you it's the teaching of your word. And Lord, I pray that each of us, according to our need, that these truths would stick in our minds and they would... Minister to our hearts, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that everyone hearing my voice would believe in Jesus, that by trusting in him and receiving and resting upon him alone as he's offered for salvation, that we would be the recipients of his obedience, that we would be righteous, that we would be the heirs of life. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.